We are going to be looking at the first week in our study together. We won't be talking about the prayer itself, but we're going to be talking about the context of the prayer. Jesus has given the church this great prayer, but he's also instructed us in a number of different ways about prayer itself. And so before we get to what Jesus actually taught us about prayer, we're going to learn from Jesus how not to pray. And so he gives us two things that we ought not to do when it comes to prayer. So we'll focus on those two things in the context of this prayer first as we look in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. That's where we find in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount the Lord's Prayer. If you have a device and that's normally where you read the Bible, then I encourage you to put on airplane mode because I know what happens. And uh, you get texts and you get emails and then pretty soon you're like, oh, 25% off this day only? Oh, I got to check that out. (laughs) Come on now. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, anyways, I can see when your faces change from one thing to the next. It glows. (laughs) I don't know if you knew that or not. Now you're like, oh, I got to turn down my, my brightness. You know, when I was in college, one of the things that I hated hearing from my coaches, I played baseball in college, and one of the things that um, would happen from time to time is the coaches would come alongside of us and they would say something like this, you're just going through the motions. You've got to stop going through the motions. You're not going to get better by just going through the motions. And I used to hate that because it was like, coach, for reals, dude, do you know what it's like? Well, he did because he played college baseball and played in the major leagues. But anyways, I say, do you understand? We just got back from a four and a half hour bus ride. It's like 1130 at night last night. I have a test. And so I studied until two in the morning. And then I had to write some papers and uh, get all that situated and, and submitted. And then I had to be at the gym at 630 because we all have to be at the gym at 630. Eight o'clock class followed by chapel, 1030 class. And I had lunch and I'm out at practice. We be going through the motions. You be happy I'm alive and I'm here. And it was just hard. And I played in Southern California. I played at Biola. And so, as you know, like it's just hot down there. And, and during the spring, the smog is ripe. And it's just, I'm just glad to be on two feet, you know, and upright. And so, anyways, I would kind of push back a little bit. But one of the things that I learned from that is, you know, it's not only true with like sports and chores and things like that, that we can go through the motions. Another way people say it is like you can feel indifferent or you can feel apathetic about things, but it also creeps in kind of like a fog creeps in in our own spiritual lives where we can just kind of go through the motions. We just kind of just do it because we know we're supposed to do it. We're not thinking about it. We just, eh. And like my coach used to say, just going through the motions won't make you better. And I think that applies also to our lives with the Lord as well. Now, I understand that when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, we're probably working with a bunch of different experiences. There's many of you who have already memorized the Lord's Prayer in the King James Version, that good English with thines and thous and whatnot, and you, you're just like loving it. There's others of you who have memorized it because you had to, but you would wish you could forget it or whatever, and maybe you quote it or recite it by memory, but you have no idea what it means, and then others of you are like me who are introduced to the Lord's Prayer for the first time and its significance at a later date, and you're kind of anticipating this study of thinking, you know what, I know what it is, but I don't really know what the substance of the prayer is. And so this is going to be a good study no matter where you're at um, in that regard. Jesus gave this prayer to the church. He gave it to the church, and we are to use it to be guided into theology and worship. We know more about who God is and ourselves through it, But before Jesus teaches us how to pray and what to pray, he first teaches us what not to pray and how not to pray. And so we see this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. Jesus says, and when you pray, 
you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Because of your fatherly love for us, you have not left us alone without help. You sent Jesus to rescue us, and Jesus has sent forth the Holy Spirit, and so now we have the guide and the comforter. We have the wisdom. We can know the very mind of God. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, for those of us who have repented and believed in Jesus. We thank you for how he guides us and how he illumines our minds to the truth of Scripture. And so we pray to that end, Lord, that you would indeed illumine our minds Grant us that we would, with our hearts, love you. With our wills, that we would pursue you. And so, Lord, we count it a privilege this day as your church to gather together, to be able to learn about the Lord's Prayer, and even to pray the Lord's Prayer. God, we know that the church has been doing this since the first century. And so we count it a privilege to be counted among the, as Hebrews 12 says, the great cloud of witnesses, to be able to study this and be able to pray this prayer. So God, would you remind us that what we're doing in the next six weeks is something Christians have done all over the world since the very beginning. And so we join our hearts to theirs. We join our voices with theirs. And we ask you to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, I want to start with the context of the prayer. So we won't be talking about the prayer specifically, but we're going to talk about the context of it. And in the context, what we come to understand is this prayer is located right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, many people know what the Sermon on the Mount is, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And many people, for reasons I'm still yet not certain, uh, will love the Sermon on the Mount. They feel like it's so uplifting and encouraging. And, man, read the Sermon on the Mount. I remember when I first became a Christian, I didn't know what to do. Like, when you get thrust into this new thing, you're into a new culture. And people say words that I never heard before. And they talk about stuff that I never heard before. And so I would ask people, what do you do now? Now that you're a Christian, what do you do? And they're like, oh, just read the Sermon on the Mount. You'll get everything you need to know. And I remember reading it for the first time, and I was not encouraged at all. In fact, I looked at it, and I went, oh, no. How come toast? <laughs> There's no way. And I think what's really important for us is that when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we should discern what Jesus was doing when he was preaching this sermon. For those of us who went to Israel a couple months ago, we actually sat on the Mount of Beatitudes, and we sat at the place in which Jesus preached this sermon as you overlook the Sea of Galilee. And it was there that Jesus, as he preached this, what he was doing was actually showing us our sin. And not only was he showing us our sin, but then he was showing us our absolute need for grace and forgiveness. And that was his purpose. That was what he was trying to do. I'm going to show you this. Chapter 5, verse 20. Here's what Jesus preached. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
All right, have a good day. Now, this may not mean much to us today, but if you understand what a scribe and Pharisee is in Jesus' day, you will understand that these people are the most righteous people around. Everyone understood that they were the most knowledgeable, the most obedient. They knew everything inside and out. And so everyone, if you wanted to be righteous, you just had to be like a scribe or a Pharisee. And Jesus is saying now, yeah, you know those scribes and Pharisees? Super righteous, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You have to exceed them in your righteousness if you want to get into heaven. What? And remember, Jesus is preaching to a bunch of like blue-collar country bumpkins sitting on a hill. They don't have college. They don't have a seminary. And now Jesus is telling them, your righteousness must exceed that of scribes and Pharisees. If you were sitting there, you might have thought, well, might as well quit right now. There's no point. I can't get ahead. I'm not better than these religious leaders. How in the world am I going to do this? But then Jesus ramps it up even more. Here's the answer to the question, what is exceeding righteousness? So what is exceeding righteousness? The answer is, chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh. Are you kidding me? So wait a minute. So at first you tell me I have to exceed the righteousness of the most righteous people I know on planet Earth. Yes. But now you're telling me the exceeding righteousness that I need to have is absolute perfection. Yes. I got to be perfect like God. Yes, that's the standard. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. And Jesus says, yes, that's the point. That's what I'm trying to communicate to you. Nobody can do it. And so naturally, we would say, well, wait a minute. If if no one could possibly live up to these standards, then that means there's nobody who is qualified or worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Nobody. Yeah. And no one ever could. No. Well, okay. Then why doesn't God just lower the standards? Seems reasonable to me. After all, there's a song that's popular, God didn't want heaven without us, so why doesn't he just lower the standards? It's that way we'd all just flood in. Well, because the moral standards that God puts forward of our perfection is in accordance with his own being. In other words, you need to be morally perfect because I, God says, am morally perfect. And the standard is not something outside of me, the standard is me. And so if I have to lower the standard to accommodate your sinfulness, then I have to deny me in order to accommodate you. And God has no other gods before God. God is not an idolater. God will not love you more than God loves himself. So God won't lower the standard. You somehow either need to meet the standard or you need help. Because what Jesus is preaching is at some point, we have to get to the end of ourselves so that way Jesus can step forward. That's our only hope. Jesus makes this incredibly difficult um, to read the Sermon on the Mount, at least for me. Maybe for you, you, you got it all figured out and you're the greatest. Anyways, verse 21. If you look at Jesus, he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So what Jesus is doing is he's quoting an Old Testament law. 
And he goes on to talk about adultery and divorce and all kinds of things. And he keeps saying, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. Verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, 43. You've heard it said. And he's quoting this law. And so he's reminding the people, this is the law, this is the moral standard. And if you think about it, when you hear the first one in verse 21, you're like, okay, don't murder. All right, I got that. I haven't murdered anyone lately. I'm good. And generally, you have people in our culture say, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. Okay. Granted. But then there's verse 22, and that's a little stickier, where he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What? So what Jesus is doing is he's not loosening the law in order to accommodate sinners. Instead, he is ramping up the law and intensifying it by applying the law to our inner being. So Jesus is saying, oh, so you have moral conformity externally, but really God's word is all about penetrating your exterior and arriving at the deep recesses of your interior. And when the word of God penetrates to your inner person, what do you discover there? It's not about have you murdered your neighbor lately. It's about are you angry? Are you abusive? Are you insulting? Do you harbor resentment? Do you seek to destroy with your words? How is your attitude about your neighbor? And once Jesus penetrates to those depths, now all of a sudden we're looking at it going, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm in big trouble. And you have to remember Jesus' point. Jesus' point in preaching this sermon is so that we will finally get to the end of ourselves and all of our moral triumphs, and we will finally realize what God demands is absolute perfection And we are not perfect. And therefore, Romans 3.23 is true. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God that we fall short of? It's the moral standard of God himself. God's glorious holiness is the standard. And we all fall short of God's glorious holiness. Therefore, we all are sinners deserving of hell, and nobody gets into the kingdom of heaven. Now, some may say, okay, well, what if you do have some emotional kind of like obedience and physical obedience, and you're kind of doing a good thing, and Jesus says, wait a minute, you need to check your motives too. Chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Oh, no. Now Jesus is saying, ah, so you think you're pretty moral? You're pretty obedient? You think you got some things together? Yeah, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah, you better be careful because the motives behind all that, you need to bring that into the light as well. And what do you find there? Oh, man, I'm toast. Because you have to remember, we're both body and soul. As human beings, like I preached last week, we are physical and non-physical. 
We have a physical component, our bodies. We have a non-physical component, our minds, our hearts, our wills, things like that. You're going to read about that in the workbook. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that what is commanded, what is demanded, is full obedience in our whole person. Which means we can't just obey with our bodies or we can't obey with our minds or our hearts and leave the other stuff aside. It's the whole thing. He says this in Matthew 15, verse 7 and 8. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, verse 8, this people honors me with their lips, physical, but their heart, non-physical, is far from me. You see, we can perform all kinds of outward deeds, and yet the inner self is still living in rebellion. And when that is true, Jesus says that's hypocrisy. Because Jesus demands, God demands, according to his own being, that the entirety of what it means to be human being, being submission and obedience to God, our whole selves. Now, if it requires perfect moral righteousness in order to be admitted into the kingdom of heaven, that is to say, to be admitted into the presence of God, and every single person has sinned and falls short of that glorious standard, then how in the world can anyone possibly have hope to enter into the kingdom of heaven, into God's presence? And that's exactly why Jesus preaches the way he does is because he wants us to understand at some point you have to get to the end of yourself so that way I can step forward. And when Jesus steps forward, what he's doing is preaching himself. What you need most is not more self-esteem. What you need most is not more self-help. What you need most is not another book to read or another podcast to listen to. What you need most is not more followers on Instagram. What you need most is Jesus. Our only hope of ever being admitted into the kingdom of heaven and to have our sin forgiven and to be redeemed in such a holistic way that we can obey God in both body and soul is if Jesus comes to our rescue. That's it. And so we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul writes, For our sake, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, Jesus was completely sinless, and yet God the Father casted upon God the Son the fullness of our sins so that the fullness of God's wrath would be poured out on Jesus and not us. And the continue on, it says, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. God knows that we don't have what it takes to pass the standard in order to be admitted into his presence in which there is perfect righteousness and holiness. So God the Father sent God the Son, born of a virgin, and Jesus lived the sinless life that you and I could never do. And in his perfect obedience, he has secured a righteousness, which is the very requirement for admission into the kingdom of God. And not only that, but then Jesus, by his own will and desire, took upon himself the penalty for our sin and was crucified on a cross and the full wrath of God and judgment for sin was poured out on him. And being dead and buried, he then rose three days later. And that resurrection is the confirmation that Jesus' perfect, obedient life and his death on a cross 
are fully sufficient in order to secure for all time a righteousness in which we as sinners can be counted or declared righteous and given the permission and admission to enter into God's presence. And how that works is simply we as sinners must trust that Jesus did everything that is necessary in order to make that happen. The perfect moral righteousness is not our own doing. Jesus did it for us. Somebody has to pay for sin, and that's what it means for God to be just and holy, and and Jesus did that for us. And somebody needs to rise to new life and then therefore usher in the new heavens and new earth and the new creation so we can become new and fully obedient, and Jesus has done that. So that if we will turn from our sin and instead we will just trust that Jesus is enough through his life, death, and resurrection, that God then will count to us Jesus' righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. And as a conclusion, we then can enter God's presence and be entered into the kingdom of heaven, not on our own merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ. So that through Jesus, we have access to God. You tracking with me, church? Okay. Now, what in the world does this have to do with prayer? My answer is everything. Absolutely everything. This has everything to do with prayer. The gospel, what I just explained to you, is the very motivation and it is the very hope of all prayer. Let me show you how this works. Romans chapter 8. By the way, if you've been one of those people that wants to memorize something in the scriptures, memorize Romans 8. (laughs) You won't be disappointed. Well, I'm going to start in verse 26. Here's what we read about the gospel and the way in which it shapes prayer and our motivation to pray. The Apostle Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of God or in the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. If you've ever wanted to know what the will of God is and how to pray accordingly, it's only going to come about by the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for us, teaching us how to pray and what to pray in conformity and in accordance to the will of God. But the only way to receive the Holy Spirit is, Ephesians 1.13, repenting and believing the gospel. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what that means, brothers and sisters? Do you see how the gospel shapes our prayer and motivates us to pray? You see, we can come to God in prayer. That is what it means to pray, is to come to God, to be in his presence, to have an audience with God. And we can pray confidently because, as Romans 8.1 says, those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer condemned. And if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have perfect righteousness. If we don't come to God through Jesus, then we have to come to God in some other way. And we will come to God with our own merits. Unfortunately, when we do that and we try to pray on our own merits, our own worth and value and all that kind of stuff and try to come into God's presence, Lurking in the back of our minds is always that little nagging accusation that we are condemned. How dare you think you can enter into God's presence? Who do you think you are? God doesn't want to hear you. You're disgusting. And yet Romans 8 says, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? Who are you trying to accuse? God is for me and not against me. Because I am in Christ, and because I'm in Christ, I'm no longer condemned. Therefore, I have the right and the privilege, based on the merits of Jesus Christ, to enter boldly into the presence of God. I have an audience with God because Christ made it so. Not only that, but we can come confidently and have an audience with God in prayer because we know that because of Christ, any trial, any difficulty, any obstacle we ever face in life is not a means for God to remove or an excuse for us to think ourselves removed from the love of God. Nothing in this world can ever separate us from the love of Christ. And the reason is, because Jesus, by his blood, has purchased the affections of God for us. And because Jesus purchased those affections, and through our trusting in Jesus, the Bible says God considers us in Christ, which means God the Father loves God the Son in a way which is irrevocable, inseparable, unfailing, and because you are in Jesus by faith, then those same things to be said about the God's love for his son are said about you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God so long as you are in Christ Jesus. And if these things are true, brothers and sisters, God is for me, not against me. 
He who did not give up his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against us? Nothing can separate us. We're more than conquerors. Because of Jesus, these things are true. And if those things are true, we have every incentive in the world to come to God through Jesus in prayer. You have no reason to not pray. That is why the gospel shapes prayer. And if you don't have an understanding of the gospel, your understanding of prayer will be distorted. Nobody deserves the kingdom of, kingdom of heaven. But by God's grace, he has qualified us through Jesus by faith so that we can have an audience with God in prayer. <laughs> Jesus died to purchase that privilege. That's good. That is good. So how should we not pray? <laughs> Let's get to the text. Matthew chapter 6. And when we see in verse 5 and verse 7, we see the first thing. Jesus expects us to pray. He begins with this saying in both verse 5 and verse 7, and when you pray. Notice Jesus doesn't say, and when you become good enough to pray. If you have time to pray, if you think about it, pray. If you've read enough books on prayer, or if you've gone enough to enough, you know, conferences about prayer, then you can pray. Jesus assumes when you recognize your sinfulness and your absolute need for grace and forgiveness, and you come to Jesus for those very things, that the proper response for having received forgiveness and being given an audience with God in which you are now admitted into the kingdom of God, the proper response for everyone who, for whom that is true is prayer. Prayer. Jesus bought the right to pray. And if we don't pray, it doesn't make sense. And so now Jesus is going to tell us how not to pray. He says, don't pray like hypocrites and don't pray like pagans. He first is going to talk about hypocrites in verse 5 and 6. And he's going to lay out three things for us. Motives, place, and reward. And he says this, don't, be like, don't pray like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why? So that they may be seen by others. That's their motive. Talk more about hypocrisy in the workbook, but what Jesus is saying is, look, you can't be like the hypocrites who pray with their bodies but do not pray with their hearts. Now, we all, every single one of us, struggle. We struggle with receiving praise from others. You see, every one of us human beings, because we are made in the image of God, we are what are called creatures. And as a creature... The thing that our hearts long for most is affirmation and encouragement. And those things are going to be received by us most satisfyingly when they come from our creator. But for whatever reason, instead of going to the creator to receive the affirmation, the confirmation, the encouragement that we so desperately want, 
we have instead turned to other creatures and tried to suck satisfaction out of their opinions of us. And we find ourselves always disappointed. For we were made to crave God. And yet we instead have developed an appetite for craving the praise from others. So if you think in your mind, you know what, I would love to be encouraged, I would love to be affirmed, I would love to be, you know, like, yeah, just encouraged. You don't have to, like, repent of that. God made you to want those things. But God did not make you to receive those things from other creatures as your primary source. God created you to receive it from Him. So His affirmation of you and His encouragement of you is where you will find your greatest pleasure. But that doesn't prevent us from seeking it in places we ought not. We want people to notice us, and we think that in the noticings, that we can build our own self-worth and identity, and we think, man, if I just did this and I just did that, then by my performance, people will see me, and then they will like me, and if they like me, then I'll feel important, and if I feel important, then I'll be valuable. In walks social media. And then we do all that we can to take pictures of our amazing lives in hopes that somebody will see it. Take notice of me. And when we get the amount of likes we think our pictures deserve, we feel good. And when we don't get the amount, we delete it and do a new one. And it satisfies until the morning. And then we have to start all over again. The real motivation for prayer is not so you can look good in front of others. The real motivation for prayer, Jesus says in verse 6, when you, go, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your true motivation for prayer should be communion with God. I get God. That's why I go. I get God. And remember, when you get God, you have an audience with God. It is from God that the encouragement and affirmation your heart thirsts for is satisfied. So good. That's why I never understood. I was on, I saw this picture one time of somebody took a selfie, no joke, with a bunch of people who were praying. They're like, "Just, just praying. And I'm just thinking to myself, you couldn't disobey Matthew 6 any better than that. Amazing. Good job. <laughs> what Jesus says about place is critical. He says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, and they want to make sure that everyone sees them. In other words, they want to make sure to make a public spectacle of their prayers. And so they do it out in public. Jesus is not saying that we should never pray in public, or else what I just did earlier is sin. It's not true. But if you do it publicly in order to be seen by others, then it is sin. Instead, he offers this piece of advice. Instead, go into a secret place and pray. Is he endorsing private prayer only? You can only pray in the secrecy of your home. Do not pray anywhere else. No, he's not doing that. But if you think about it, isolated in your home, 
where nobody else is looking, there's no temptation for pride in that moment, is there? Who's going to see you? (laughs) But if you pray in a particular location in your home so your husband will see you and he'll be put to shame and so your wife will see you and then she'll be put to shame or your kids will see you, oh, see, you have a godly dad. Your motives is to be seen and that is not good. So your posture and your posing and your gesturing, consider all these things. But if we are parading our piety in front of others, Jesus says, this is hypocritical. And then he says the reward. Now, I I talk about this in the workbook a lot, and so I'm going to encourage you to read it. I will only say this. He says, truly I say to you at the end of verse 5, those who do these kinds of things, pray in public in order to receive the applause of others, they have received their reward. If getting your Instagram pictures and your blog posts shared and getting all this stuff is what you desperately want, you want to be liked, that is all you will get. That's it. Don't expect anything else. I hope it lasts and I hope it satisfies. Because when you wake up in the morning, be prepared for despair because it is coming. Or the other reward, as he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. What is that reward? It's more of God. God will give you more of himself. And the more of God you get, the more praying you want to do. And the more praying you do, the more of God you get. And the more of God you get, the more you want to pray. And the more you pray, you see what's happening. Robert Murray McShane, he wrote this. What a man is alone and on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. If you ever want to know what your heart really is motivated by when it comes to prayer, what you do in the quietness of your own heart and home, perhaps, that will give you your answer. He also says, don't pray like a pagan. He says the word Gentile, which means those who don't believe in the one true God, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And so what Jesus teaches us is that this mindless babbling about meaningless words repeated over and over, this is not going to get you anywhere. The idea that you can heap up a large volume of words and increase the likeliness that God will respond to you is just foolish. Not only that, but praying is not some sort of like magical incantation. We're not doing mantras. Now, I find this particularly helpful because when I was at Biola University, that's where I went to college, the fairest institution in all the land, they had a missions conference. And I'll never forget the guy who was preaching there. He was, he was talking about one of the guys. He was talking about prayer and missions. And he had us in little small groups. And he said, write down all the prayer requests that you have in the little circle. And write them all down and, and record them. And then pray over them regarding missions. I was like, okay. And so we did that. And then he w- went on and he was preaching. And then he said, uh, how many of you um, wrote down in your prayer request um, 
about safety, and then he went on to list all these things, about money, finances, safety, travel, all this kind of stuff, and he said, and, and salvation, how many of you prayed that you want people to come to salvation? And so people are like doing whatever. And uh, he said, now I want you to count the prayer requests, and I want you to notice the ratio of what was being asked to be prayed for. And so he said, I'll bet you anything that you guys prayed for the people's salvation way less than anything else. And so, of course, we're like, no, this guy's dumb. He doesn't know anything. Look at our 13 things on there that our group came up with. Six of them were about comfort. Only one of them was about salvation of unbelievers. Uh Uh-oh. That's crazy. And then he was going on and he was preaching even more. And he said, and how many of you ever pay attention to what what you say when you pray? Now, I know that you guys know this about me. I didn't become a Christian until later in life. I was a senior in high school, and so I wasn't really familiar with the Christian subculture, and so I was new to everything. And so I didn't know that there was, like, things like, have you done your devos? I'm like, what is that? Do you have a prayer closet? A what? Where can you get those? Home Depot? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I was introduced to this whole subculture of Christianity, And the guy who was speaking, he was talking about how we say things in prayer that we don't even know we're saying. And he said, for instance, take the word just. People say the word just all the time. They don't even know it. And of course, some of us were like, this guy's an idiot. He doesn't know anything. So we took our prayer request. We sat around in a group, and we're supposed to pray. And so he's like, hey, if anyone says the word just, just slap them on the knee. And we're like, all right. And so I'm the first one to pray. I get about five or six words into it. I get slapped. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, you said just. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. All right, I won't do it again. All right. I keep praying. Smacked again. I'm like, bro, smack me again. I'm telling you. This is ridiculous. He said, you said just again. No, I didn't. And so I started praying to fast, to trying to make sure that if, even if I said just, it'd be too fast for them to even hear it. You know, it's like, God, please help all the people. And he's just going nuts. And then just slap. And I'm like, that's it, you know? I'm tired of this. And what the guy said in preaching was this. When he was preaching, he said, we say the word just, but in English, the word just means to be honing in on one particular thing. So when we pray, we pray like this. God, I just, I just ask that you would just do this. And what we're doing is we're asking, God, we want you to hone in on this particular issue and nothing else. You see, get your fingers out of this stuff. Just, just this is what we're concerned about. All right? Just this. All right? All right. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow. Just this. And I started to realize that even in my own prayer life, I was praying like that. And yet Paul says, God can do imaginably more than we ever thought or imagined. Just an infinite amount of things. No, no, no. Just do this. Do you see the contrast? I didn't know that. Or like the phrase, I didn't know what this was. I remember opening my eyes one time when somebody said, and they're like, oh, I just echo the prayers of all that has been prayed. And I was like, echo the, echo the prayer? What does that even mean? I, did, I had to learn these things in the Christian subculture. You know what I'm talking about. And what Jesus is saying is, look, these empty phrases, they're meaningless. They don't mean anything. You're just saying them. And so instead of just saying meaningless words because we've heard them prayed or whatever, think about the actual words that you're communicating because we want to say and pray things which are intelligible, not only to God, but also 
to other people. And I know the pushback is, well, God knows everything. You can pray anything you want. And I say, yeah, 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 there's 1 Corinthians 14, and that says, you know, pray intelligibly. But, you know, whatever. Why quibble over Scripture? And the other thing I learned was this. Sometimes we can treat prayer as though it is some kind of magical quotation or incantation. You see, when I first became a Christian, I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't know anything. And so I was playing baseball. This was the spring semester, my high school year. I've been a Christian three weeks or something like that. And, some, and one of the coaches for the other high school, he saw me before a game. And he comes up to me. He goes, hey, I heard you became born again. And I went, what? I don't even know what that is. I didn't come born again. He goes, oh, it means evangelical. Dude, what does that mean? What are you talking about? I don't, I don't know what you're saying. You became a Christian. Oh, yeah, 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 I became a Christian. Yeah. And so then he gave me some, some wisdom. And he said, you know what? Now that you're a Christian, and I don't know what he was, but he said, now you need to memorize the Lord's Prayer. Have you had a chance to do that? And I'm thinking, dude, I don't even know what born again means. And you think I'm memorize the Lord's Prayer? And he goes, if you just know the Lord's Prayer, you can just recite the Lord's Prayer, and God will get you out of any sticky situation. <laughs> Mind you, I haven't been a Christian very long. I'm like, for real? Dude, legit. A couple weeks later, base is loaded. <laughs> One out, bottom of the seventh. Up steps, Phil Ward. Get in the batter's box. I did know another verse, which I saw at basketball games. I can do all things through Christ. So I was like, dude, I can do all things through Christ. I'm going to hit a dinger. <laughs> then I stepped out and I go, no, 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 I don't just want that verse. I got the Lord's Prayer. I memorized the Lord's Prayer, so I recited it in my head, stepped in the batter's box, struck out. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> At the moment, it wasn't, though. But what was crazy was over the next couple months as a new Christian, I didn't know this until like some years later, but, but I noticed for the next couple months, I started getting the sneaking suspicion that prayer was pointless and God wouldn't come through for you. I remember clear as day thinking that. Prayer is pointless, God won't come through for you. And the evidence, strike out. Obviously God's not real, prayer doesn't work. Don't pray like a pagan. The Lord's prayer is not some magical incantation it's not heaping up empty words that are meaningless. Prayer is the reality that God has lifted the scepter and he's told us to enter in. And we now have an audience with the king of all creation. <laughs> and that was, that privilege was bought for me by Jesus. So now what I want to do for the next five minutes is to get a 30,000-foot perspective on the prayer itself. Over the next five weeks, we're going to look at each of the petitions, and we're going to unpack it all for you through your workbook and through the preaching. But I want to give you just a 30,000-foot just kind of overview of this really quickly. This prayer is divided into six petitions. Petitions means requests. So the first three are found in verses 9 through 10. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Petition number one is the hallowing of God's name. That means to honor, to glorify, to lift up, to exalt. The second petition is the first line in verse 10. Your kingdom come. That is to say, we want for the kingdom of heaven to to come. We, We want to experience the fullness of all that the kingdom of God means. The third petition is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God to have his way as king and ruler and creator over all things. And so we pray these things. If you notice, the first three petitions are what are called transcendent petitions, which means transcendent is otherworldly, it's supernatural, it's high and lifted up. And Jesus begins this prayer teaching us that the first thing you need to pay attention to in prayer is not yourself, but the audience that you have, namely God. The first thing is to have conscious awareness of to whom you're speaking. That God is the exalted one. God is the high and lifted up one. God is the one in whose presence we come trembling and we speak few words, as Ecclesiastes 5 says, for God is a holy God. And so we come with that in our minds. And then the next three petitions are petitions of imminence. And what that means is is the earthly kind of stuff, the here and now kind of stuff, the day-to-day kind of stuff. And we see that in verse 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray, that God would provide us all our needs. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There is real forgiveness to be had and given and experienced, and we ask for these things. And let us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are asking God to guide us and deliver us from evil because we know Satan prowls as a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And so we ask God, watch over us. And when you look at these six petitions, the three transcendent petitions, the three imminent petitions, what you come to realize is what God asks of us is first and foremost to prioritize God above all things. Prioritize his kingdom above all things. But that does not mean you ignore your own needs. We lay those before the throne of God, but we do so after We come to God in humility and adoration, bowing before his majesty. And remember what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and the rest will be granted to you. There's a primacy here. There's a superiority here. There's a a priority here of God first and then the rest. There's a Latin phrase that the church has used for 2,000 years. It's called lex orandi, lex credendi. Lex orandi. Lex credendi. And what that simply means is, as you pray, so you believe. In other words, whatever it is you truly believe, that is what you will end up praying. And so if you ever want to know if, whether or not you're getting the sequence right, that we're putting the transcendent God stuff first and then our own stuff second, if you ever want to know whether or not you're getting that right, then just look at the content of your prayers and ask yourself the question, what am I actually praying Is it for my needs first and foremost, my wants, Aunt Susie's bunion and all that kind of stuff? All things we should be praying for, but not as of first importance. Instead, are we putting the first things first? Because as you pray, so you believe. Whatever it is you really believe, it will be evidenced by how you pray. And then real quickly, you see the pronouns in the text. Our Father, our daily bread, our debts. 
us. This prayer is not meant to be a prayer only for us privately and individually. This is a prayer God has given to the church. This is our prayer. And so we should pray it with one another and pray for one another, but we must understand this is us here. Oftentimes I hear that, you know what, one thing that the church fails at, it doesn't meet the real needs among us. And I would say that may be true, but here's the question that I, ask for, I have for you. What needs have you become aware of that you intentionally ignored? And generally people go, well, I don't know. And I will say yes, because we as a people, we believe that if we actually communicate our needs, it's a sign of weakness. And we don't want to be seen as weak people, and so therefore we never verbalize our needs And if you never verbalize your needs, how can we meet needs we don't know about? And in order for us to be a church that is actually meeting one another's needs, we have to verbalize those needs, which means we must be vulnerable with one another. And we have to love one another deeply enough to ask. But, brothers and sisters, be warned. Speaking of slapping, I will slap you if this happens. We do not use our prayer requests as an opportunity for gossip. Did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, yeah, we need to pray for so-and-so. Yeah, this is going on. Shut your mouth. We need to pray for one another, but not destroy each other with gossip. And I know what's going to happen. You've heard me say this kind of stuff, and now you're in your small groups, and what's going to happen, and I just imagine, I say this with a smile on my face, but this week you're going to get together, and all of a sudden you're going to want to pray together, and people are going to be like, I'm not praying. Did you hear what Phil said? No, man. I might say just. (laughs) And then pretty soon you're just like, man, they asked me to pray. I don't know if I want to. I don't want people slapping me and all this kind of stuff. And so I would just say, That was just one of those things. You don't need to, you know, like make that happen in your your small group. So don't be slapping each other. And definitely don't take out your pad and like grade people in their rubric of like how good you're. Stan, that was only a seven, buddy. (laughs) Don't be doing all that. But brothers and sisters, let's pray together. And you'll read in the workbook about somehow sometimes people have fear about praying out loud. And usually it's because of a performance thing. If they pray out loud, somebody's going to judge them, and then they won't receive the kind of praise that they want, and so they don't pray out loud because they don't want to be seen as not performing well. But brothers and sisters, that's not what Jesus commends. Jesus commends the gospel. We don't pray with each other in order to perform for each other. We pray with and for each other because we know that the affirmation And the encouragement and the acceptance that we long for is not derived from the people we pray with. It's derived from God himself. And so we come to God free of performance because Jesus has done everything necessary to make prayer possible. The gospel will set you free. And then lastly, the doxology. If you are an English Bible reader and you are a King James reader, you probably know that at the end of this verse there is the little phrase, and thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology. You'll notice that if you read the ESV, it isn't there. And so people may worry about that, like, well, you're you're getting rid of the word of God. No. 
there's a lot of scholarship that has been done about this, and the reason why it isn't there in the ESV is because the most um, early copies and manuscripts of the New Testament and the best ones, they don't have it. And so more than likely what happened was it was added towards the, fir- the end of the first or second century, and a pastor maybe wrote it in the margin or whatever, and so it got included eventually. But Matthew didn't write the doxology, but it is in the English tradition. So it's in the Coverdale Bible, Geneva Bible, King James Bible, and some others. But if you look in your ESV, it's not there. And I had somebody email me, and they're like, I'm never reading the ESV again. It doesn't have the doxology. And so I said, well, what Bible do you read? And they're like, the NIV. <laughs> I said, can you read your NIV for me out loud, verse 13? And they read it, but deliver us from evil. It doesn't have it either. (laughs) I said, you've been reading the NIV for 15 years, never noticed it. Anyways, if you want to know more information about that, we produced this little appendix and this little piece of paper. You can get the info booth. It's also online, and it tells you a little bit about textual criticism and about why it was left off and, and the scholarship behind it and all that kind of stuff. I highly encourage you to get it if you have questions about that. So it wasn't original to Matthew's gospel. Does it mean that we can still pray it? Does it mean it's still, is it no longer helpful or useful? And I would say we should still pray it. It is helpful and it is useful. And above all these things, it's just stinking beautiful. And it's found elsewhere in the Bible. That's why I'm okay with using it. Let me me quickly do this. Jude 24 and 25. Here's two doxologies that you need to know about first. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great jo- with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. But my favorite, First Chronicles 29.11. Oh, yeah. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours yours is the kingdom O lord and you are exalted as head above all did you see it it's there it's biblical it's just not original to matthew's gospel should we pray it yes it's beautiful so instead of closing our service with a song instead we're going to close our service with prayer and we as a church are going to recite the lord's prayer together as churches have been doing for 2,000 years so i would ask you to stand where you're at and the prayer will be on the screen and we'll pray this together our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.